0: Let's, um, we'll go ahead and pray, and then try to tell you all that we want to, at least hope to get through tonight. And then, let's see, tonight's, we got the next two Wednesday nights off, right? Okay. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, all the blessings that you daily load us with and we pray for your presence here throughout the the whole building here tonight all that's going on in your name and i pray that the the gospel will find its way into young hearts and that they would be taught the things of god and follow in them bless us in our study here we pray in jesus name amen okay <clears throat> um what I want to, here's what we'll, there's no hope of us getting through this, but um, we're going to be looking at what is called the high Middle Ages, okay? There's the Middle Ages, but then the, there's sort of the early Middle Ages, which is in like the 800s and so forth. Um, but the, the core of what usually goes under the title, the Middle Ages, when the the um papacy the pope the power of the pope and the office of the pope um, was at its highest point was in the high middle ages roughly what we're talking about is um, this is a bit of a stretch but it's about 950 through around 1450 okay and there are, here's a number of things that were going on. One, um, which we'll, I'll go back through and we'll see how far we get. But the Crusades were going on. Um, what's called scholasticism or the schoolmen, which we'll, I'll explain. Um, the just, explosion of the building of cathedrals, and it was more than just building of buildings. There was a lot of symbolism in what the architecture and so forth, Um, and there were (coughs) the continual threats. um, A big one that we still deal with um, today, I shouldn't say deal with, it's overwhelming us today. It's a rise of humanism. And humanism began during these years at the very start of them. We'll explain that hopefully whenever we get to it. Um, that was a big threat. There was another big threat, which was the rise of, well, Genghis Khan. The rise of the Khan dynasty or what is also known as the, the Mongol um, Empire. Now I didn't know this but the Mongol Empire um, covered more real estate than any empire before or since. M- most massive in land area in the history of the world. Um, took in much of Russia clear over to the eastern coast um, of China. Um, And it was a massive, massive. And Genghis Khan, Khan, of course, and his armies struck fear into everybody. It was a, you know, it wasn't a Sunday school picnic with them. They were pretty brutal. Um, And so they were a major threat to the Catholic Church Um, and to the Eastern Orthodox more so, and they helped along with the Muslims. And the Mongols weren't necessarily to begin with Muslim, but they converted to Islam. And so then they became a major threat to the eastern part of the Christian empire um, and nearly obliterated uh, an awful lot of eastern Christianity, okay? Um, then which we'll never get to this um, but I'm going to write myself a note um, not to even bother with it tonight but um, how many of you um, have ever heard of the inquisition okay the inquisition was not a good time Um, and this was, when we get to that, this was also during this time, they were a frightening um, system of court, courts and hearings and accusations of heresy. But the definition of heresy was completely changed from what you and I today think of as heresy false doctrine, false teaching, about the main doctrines of Christianity. That wasn't even it. Um, <clears throat> they, It was real bad. Um, to this day, people will talk about um, the Inquisition, that something is like the Inquisition. I heard someone on the news last night use another term that is a much later term um, three, four hundred years later, three hundred years later. But it's similar, and it's from Britain. You ever heard of the Star Chamber? Anybody ever heard of that? The Star Chamber was a secret court under Charles I in England where all the hearings that you you were guilty, you had to prove you were innocent, you, but you could call no witnesses, you didn't get to confront any of your accusers. (laughs) Um, And all of the people that were assigned, the few noblemen and judges that were assigned to the star chamber um, court system, were all appointed by the king. And they dealt with issues of people who were accused of stuff by the king. Okay. So, I mean, you're not going to win. And they were talking about some hearings in Congress um, back when they were trying to impeach Trump for the 48th or 9th time. Um, And they were allowing no witnesses. No one could know what was going on. There were no, um, only accusers. Um, There was no one else there present to defend Trump's interests at all. That was run by Adam Schiff. and uh, That came up in some news thing I saw yesterday where they said it's a star chamber. Well, I don't know how many people even know what that means anymore, but it's a real bad situation (laughs) where you're not going to win. But at any rate, um, the Inquisition involved that kind of stuff and the difference was not in, in the Inquisition, it wasn't impeachment it was burning at the stake um, and you, you, so you prove without any witnesses and without confronting your accusers you prove that you didn't do whatever it was you're supposed to do or you get burned at the stake so that's kind of an interesting situation to be in. Anyway, tons of stuff going on during this particular time. So, the first thing we'll look at are the Crusades. Um, Tell me maybe to begin with here, what what do you know um, about the Crusades as far as their reason and just what in the world was going on? Yeah. Okay, who, and, and th- these aren't trick questions, um, who was making it difficult for Christian pilgrims? Yeah, okay, radical um, Islam. They had conquered Palestine and they had control of all of the Holy Land. So one of the main reasons, uh, there were probably three main reasons prompting the Crusades. One was recapture all of the Holy Land from the infidels, okay? The, the, The Muslims, okay? Second reason was to even though the Crusades came out of Western Europe and were sponsored by Rome, Roman Catholicism, they still didn't want to see the Eastern Orthodox Christians who a complete family rift had not happened yet where they went their separate ways. Um, They were close to it, but it hadn't happened yet. So they still retained some affection for our christian brothers to the east even though the eastern orthodox never acknowledged the authority of the pope okay but they felt like a second reason and and here it wasn't all because they were such wonderful souls but it was let's rather fight the muslims in palestine than wait till they get over here wait till they are knocking on the door of rome so that was the second reason for the Crusades. The third was probably a lesser reason, but in the vain hope on Rome's part that if we go help the Eastern Christians, they will finally realize they need us and they will come back into the fold. They will become a part of Roman Catholicism again and we'll be one happy family, okay? Okay. Now, <clears throat> there's even debate over how many Crusades there really were um, as far as how big and so forth would qualify to be called a Crusade, but um, we're going to go here with seven, that there were at least seven that were organized enough you could call them Crusades, okay. Some say there are nine, some say they're eight, but it, it seems probably that there were seven. Now. Um <clears throat> the first one was in 1096, okay? Um you could probably say that that crusade was the most successful. Um it came mostly from um kings and so forth in what's today France. And this was kind of a double crusade. It started out, they, there was a name for, a group of people started out who were very poor. They were just lay people, and they called it, they started calling it the Peasants' Crusade, okay? But right along with that, um, <clears throat> they felt like, this was kind of a rabble bunch that were going there. So there's, there's this guy who, um, Pope Urban II, and you don't have to memorize that, um, but he preached some kind of a rip-roaring sermon um, and whipped everybody up in that part of the country, and, of course, they, they sent the sermon, printed it, and uh, so forth. Um, and that was the kickoff for a more formal kind of crusade that honestly that crusade or that group of soldiers and so forth far more organized far better equipped ended up overtaking and i don't remember where but they overtake overtook the straggling peasants and they kind of merged together all to go all the way over on foot most of them to the holy land to palestine okay um so They took off, and Pope Urban made two promises to encourage people to sign up and to go. One, full indulgences, full forgiveness of all sins, future, everything, if you went, okay? If you went and volunteered, your sins are blotted from here to, it doesn't make any difference what you do. Second, if you died fighting in this first crusade, you're automatically assured of an entrance into heaven. Well, that's kind of close to the Muslims they went to fight, you know, only they were gonna end up with 72 virgins. Um, But at any rate, so this was the kind of power the Pope assumed he had to forgive sins on earth, okay? Um, And so this was how they induced people to go. They actually left, I think, in about 1095, but they got there to Jerusalem and the Holy Land, Palestine, in um, 1096. Um, This one would be considered a... By the reasons for going, this would be considered a successful crusade because they did capture Jerusalem. Um, they, they regained most of that territory. But the problem was you can't go, you can't take an army, go all the way, the, the however far it is, to Jerusalem, capture it, and then everyone gladly you know, and partying all the way. Go home. Somebody's got to stay there and hold on to the territory or you're going to lose it. Well, it wasn't very long. I think it was um, a while, but I'll give you the next date. They lost it. They, they, you know, the few stragglers that stayed around couldn't hold on to Jerusalem and the Muslims took it back over, okay? Um, so, That then prompted about 40 years later the second crusade. The second crusade um, was in 1144, okay? So that one didn't have a particular name necessarily to it. Um, They went back to try to regain Jerusalem and failed. You could say this, of all the seven crusades, the first one would have been temporarily the most successful in that fundamental aim of regaining the Holy Land. Beyond the first one, really every other one ended up a failure as far as the military goal. But hey, you got all your sins forgiven for forever. Um, they, so they failed trying to get Jerusalem back in this 1144 when the third crusade was prompted by that failure. Let's give it a, you know, another try. And so the third crusade's in 1187. Okay, so here about another f- f- you know, 40 years or so. They go back for the third shot at it. They fail again. Um, the Fourth Crusade is about 30 years later, and that's 1202. Um, once again, failed to regain um, the Holy Land. In 2012, which is just 10 years later, they come up with a, um, well, this one was called the Children's Crusade, okay? Um that was in 2012 children's crusade it was it, it things just got weirder all along it wasn't the whole band of little children but ostensibly at the head of the column of soldiers that went all the way from europe basically to the holy land supposedly led i can't remember his name now some little kid you know i mean some 8 8-year-old kid or i don't know whatever um but you know and it was just getting weird. Um, that flopped. Um, five years later, there was a fifth crusade, um, 20 or 1217. Now the only um, that failed. So in 1228 was the sixth crusade. In that crusade, they did manage to finally retake Jerusalem, but it didn't last enough time to bother with, okay? Um, in fact, they they left, um, 1228 to 1229 was, um, now that, yeah, that's a sixth crusade, where they re- regained Jerusalem, and just about... 12, 13, 14 years later, they go back um, to try to regain Jerusalem again. In fact, that was 1248, because in 1244, they lost Jerusalem that they had regained in 1228 and twenty-nine. Okay? Um, so it was just getting nuts. Um, if you believe in an eighth crusade, Um, which some historians believe, think that the next attempt, that was in 1270. But it ends up then from 1095 or 6 to 1270, almost um, 200 years, long um, period of time. There were seven, eight, or nine, however you want to count them, crusades all that ultimately failed in the effort to get back um, the Holy Land, okay? And it wasn't until, then you have the Ottoman Empire and you have a bunch of stuff going on. And so it really was until 20th century um, that the Holy Land was freed, if you want to say it, from, uh, by the British in World War I and divided up. And then in 48, the... Um, Israelis got their property back, um, partially. So, <clears throat> at any rate, um, the thing about the Crusades was not just their failure, but was the continual, let's say, theological corruption in promising forgiveness of sins and all kinds of indulgences. Um, pre-forgiveness and all sorts of stuff that the popes made assuming an authority they never had um, and the servant uh, sense of the people who bought all that believed that this pope had the power to forgive their sins if they would go on a crusade. So all of that had a corrupting influence on not only spiritually and morally, um, but even their thinking. Um, Of course, Scripture was virtually unknown to most people that were not literate. Um, The Crusades then ended up being, and there was also lots of heavy-duty, non-Christian behavior that took place... um, during these Crusades, um, there was lots of, you know, just cruelty and indiscriminate burning of villages and killing of men, women, and children and just slaughter. So there was nothing good that came out of any of it, okay? Now, another thing that, of course, historians look at is also how far away from the New Testament idea of winning converts, um, they got. You're, you're, it was the Muslims that took, made converts at the point of a sword. The Christians, it was persuasion and the, the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit through the word of God that conquered hearts. They totally abandoned that and, and took up the sword to try to get their way. And a second thing was they're just um, being consumed with and obsessed with the actual location of where Jesus walked. It doesn't matter. I don't mean that sacrilegiously or whatever. And I suppose if, if there wasn't such a good chance of getting blown sky high on a bus, I wouldn't mind going over there, um, but I have very little interest in going over there. And the vast majority of people who are either headed to heaven today, who are safe in Jesus' arms today, never got to buy, you know, some kind of a touristy t-shirt at the milk cave where Jesus supposedly was nursed by Mary as they were fleeing to Egypt. I mean, it's just meaningless. okay. Um, there's no way under the sun that the the you know the Holy Sepulchre, and, and I saw a special here some time ago, and have read about it. You have you have the uh, three religions at least, or three branches of Christianity. You have the Protestants, the Catholics, and the Eastern Orthodox they all, of course, lay claim to all those places. The sepulcher where Jesus was buried, which there's not a snowball's chance in the hot place that that's really where he was buried. It's ridiculous. And there's the church of some other church that's built over, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. Um, And so the, the notion that it matters about the actual place, is, and, and it becomes turned into a shrine. And people worship that. And that is exactly why, whether it's the Ark of the Covenant that Indiana Jones is never going to find, the tomb of Moses, or the burial place of Moses, God intentionally hid all that stuff because he knows humans. We're, we just get... Bug-eyed at the neon lights and the sensationalism of the symbol, and we forget what is being symbolized. And so God goes to pretty great lengths to obliterate our access to actual places, because He knows we'll venerate them and we'll, we'll lose strength. that was what was going on in the Catholic Church anyway. I just read today, and of course you re- there's so much history that you you can see how you can spend your whole life on this kind of stuff, and just narrow slices of it. But um, the Eastern Orthodox in up in the 12s and the 1300s had supposedly, I don't know how much, whether it was partial or the whole arm of some saint from the 300s preserved in some kind of metal encasing, and they would use that, you know, shriveled up arm in ordaining people and in supposedly making people miraculously healed or, you know, whatever. But they kept that thing by that, if it really was from the threes it'd be a thousand years old. Now, you know, it's kind of like Lenin's tomb when they, you know, buried him in Red Square. Um, it's just crazy. But anyway, um, <clears throat> so they were already well into that kind of thinking anyway. And so you can see why the Holy Land itself, the actual land, would be so important to them um, rather than we live by faith, and the vast, vast, vast majority of people that are in heaven will never set foot in Jerusalem, but somehow they'll manage to get to heaven. Now <clears throat> um, so that's it on Crusades unless there's any questions. It was a bad chapter in in um, Christian history, really, okay? The next thing that went on at the same time that was, in a lot of ways, very good, and that was the rise of what we call the schoolmen or scholasticism, okay? Now, the settling of the country, in a sense, all throughout southern Europe and up even farther into northern Europe, by the predominance of Roman Catholicism and the the gradual, you know, stability of things settling down as more people, more pagans were converted. Um, It gave rise then to the building of monasteries in which monks studied Scripture and they also studied all the writings of the earlier Christian saints, the, you know, Augustine, Tertullian who was 190 to 250 AD, Um, Cyprian, Jerome, Origen, Justin Martyr, there were tons of early Christian writers and they would very faithfully copy those and they would study those Um, and the, the monasteries gradually began to be centers of learning. They were the keepers of the, of the scrolls, and they were the ones who maintained Bible translations and continued to, you know, copy them, and so everything that was read was hand copied, okay? Um, <clears throat> books were, or scrolls were highly prized, because there weren't very many of them, and, and it wasn't until the 1200s that Europe ran into an import from China, which was paper. They, earlier it was um, it was velium, which was skins. So you went to great lengths to get the skins off of some animal, treat them and so forth, and then they would write on, that's what they would write on. Um, so it was laborious, time-consuming, and people spent their whole lives in the monastery just doing that. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, what occurred then, especially around, there there were small churches built, but then wherever in the city that the, a bishop was located, there's where they began to build cathedrals from 1170 to 1270. This is just one 100-year period. 500 Gothic cathedrals, some massive things that are still the, the, the Notre Dames, were built. 500 in France alone. That doesn't count Germany, Belgium, you know, all the other places, Italy, Just in France, there were 500 in a period of 100 years, 500 of these great Gothic cathedrals were built. Um, That's the next thing that we'll look at. But in the meantime, wherever there was a cathedral, a cathedral was the home church of a bishop. Okay? If you weren't, uh, you didn't have a cathedral unless you had a bishop. Um, So the big, grand, main first church was because a bishop, that was the seat, it was called, of the bishop of that whole region, whatever it might have been. They were, of course, responsible for training of priests, the ordaining of priests, the administering of all the church business and all that. So it made sense that the cathedral would be a center Um, wherever there was a cathedral, it was the center for that surrounding territory of education, of anyone going into the priesthood, uh, um, convents for nuns, and so they naturally became schools, and um, you know, places of learning, and at this same time, with the rise of what's called humanism, which I'll get to maybe, They also began to unearth and reuse and dust off and get reacquainted with all of the old Greek philosophers' writings, Roman philosophers and logic and all that kind of stuff. That wasn't necessarily good because none of the Greeks and the Romans were Christians. Um, But the attempt in these schools was two, two things. Number one, it was to systematize christian doctrine to organize spell out officially form the libraries on the doctrine of the trinity the doctrine of you know doctrine of god doctrine of man doctrine of sin They have the notion of what's called systematic theology okay um, and then that of course became the standard by which you ever judged anybody that was uh, accused of heresy. This is what the church, these are the Christian doctrines. Second thing, um, <clears throat> there was a lot of attempt then because in whatever you, it, it seems like there's hardly anything secular. Everything was dominated by the church, but there was some secular learning and universities being built. And they spent all their time on what's called the classics. The classics were all the Greek stuff, all the Roman stuff. Okay, um, the, those schools attempted to merge the thinking methods of the Greeks and the Romans with Christianity. Thinking that, and it wasn't the first time it happened. It happened much earlier too. But thinking that, if we merge those it will make Christianity more appealing to the intelligentsia, the educated people who are now becoming a strata of society. And it will give us a vehicle to try to get the gospel to pagans who may be familiar with the Greek philosophers, but they know nothing about Christianity. So. That's an alluring temptation. It seems to make sense. Um, it's no different than giving your dog a pill. You can't give them a pill unless you roll it up in sticking a hot dog or you, you know, <laughs> candy or something because they're not going to take it. So we trick them with something that, it masks what we're trying to teach them. Now here's what always happens when you get to doctrine teaching, thinking, logic, reason, all that. The vehicle you try to use to introduce Christianity ends up corrupting the Christianity. Okay? It's kind of like fixing a good a brand, you know, n- nice hot meal but serving it on a plate that's dirty, that's never been washed, because it's a gaudy looking, attractive plate. It's going to corrupt what you're trying to feed them. That's what invariably happens when you try to adopt the world's, what the world recognizes as acceptable, and then stick Christianity into it and hope that they'll eat it. It always corrupts what you're trying to get him to take, okay, happened here. Um, and with the rise of humanism, which I will have said it enough, I will touch on that before we get out of here. Um, that's exactly what began to happen, okay. But anyway, um so, two, there were two kinds of schools then the ones that were associated with a cathedral and a bunch of priests and monks and everybody around who taught. And then here's what happened it's a good thing, too. The culture was almost exclusively illiterate. The peasants, even a lot of the noblemen, were illiterate. So, they gradually opened up those schools to local people, not just those preparing for priesthood. And so, Then, out of that, became universities. And the great, great, great universities in Europe that are, are a thousand years old or more got their start this way. Look at America. Virtually every single, hardly an exception, of the early and what we would consider the leading universities, all were started as religious schools Preparing for ministry. Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, all of those schools were started as schools for ministers of that particular denomination. Um, Not today, of course, you wouldn't know it. um, There's no mention of God. Nevertheless, um, that's how they started. Similar then to... What went on in um, the Middle Ages in Europe? Other, another, one other way that universities started were there were also scholars that wrote and were highly looked up, looked up to, who may not have been associated with any kind of a university, but they just taught. Well, it would be similar to what took place back in with the Greek philosophers. You'd gather around, students would just gather around a teacher and follow him wherever went and they would meet in rented buildings. If the weather was, if they were in a country where Mediterranean, uh, you meet in the town square, you meet down by the beach or whatever's warm, it's fine. And so schools also, universities, ended up growing up out of those settings. So it's not bad that education became important. Literacy became important through the Middle Ages. Okay? Now, um, <clears throat> let me say something just quickly about um, cathedrals. There were probably, um, maybe just, we'll just say, I'll say three things here. <clears throat> Number one, unfortunately, There was a lot of competition between great cities over who could build the greatest, you know, cathedral, had the most magnificent cathedral. Um, But the very architecture, the structure of the cathedrals was meant to draw your eyes to heaven. So there was a symbol in what they, the, the spires and the great towers, and they figured out, I'm I'm not big into architecture, but they figured out with flying buttresses, you know, those those kind of um, whatever you'd call them, um, a way to prop up a wall um, and to, to strengthen it could allow them to have thinner walls. They didn't have to have, you know, like 20 foot wide walls of stone to get 40 stories. Some of them were 30 to 40 stories high. Well, the flying buttresses labeled them to make them lighter and then taller, but many, many of them ended up collapsing. Maybe it took 200 years to collapse. Sometimes it collapsed while they were building it. but everyone tried to outdo everybody else. But the, the the tallness was meant to draw your eyes to heaven. They did that on purpose, so that it would be. And the magnificent of magnificence of it was to to produce awe, wonderment, sense of majesty, which I frankly don't think is bad. Now. We can't do that today. We don't have the money to do it, and so forth. But there is something about um, when we had the privilege that you guys gave us of going over to Europe, I don't care who you are, when you walk into those massive cathedrals, there's a sense of awe And nobody's standing around, popping their gum and chatting. Um, Everybody just seems overcome with this. You're just, you talk like this. Um, Because it's just awe. And, And you just look at the stones and you look at the, it's just unbelievable. And you think, how in the world did people in the, Uh, 900s, well we were um, one of the places I can't remember went went to so many of them but there were places we went to the foundations were started in the 800s I mean it's just you just stand there and think I can't even believe this Um, it's still standing we've got stuff today that after 50 years they tear it down uh, it's not, cause or, or else it will fall down. Um, the second thing they always did was filled them with windows but stained glass windows which was another invention really that they came up with. But you remember you're dealing with a mostly illiterate society and so every one of the stained glass windows were scenes of Bible stories and with that many windows, you could get a lot of Bible stories. But you, it's just multiplied. All kinds of feeding the 5,000. Jesus walking on the water. Crucifixion. Resurrection. Of course, David and Goliath. Um, mo, the cross in the Red Sea. The entire Bible between um, statues, but mostly the stained glass windows, taught them the Bible, because they couldn't read it. Plus, they didn't have them. Usually a cathedral would have one Bible, um, and it was under the care of whoever was the chief priest of the cathedral, and so nobody had a Bible. So you had to learn from these pictures. The other thing, that I think we could say this is really interesting, so, you know, make sure you're awake for this. I talked last week about the feudal system where you had the lords of the manor and the peasants. Really, these great cathedral towns and the businesses around about them, the artisans, the the stonemasons, the woodcarvers, the stained glass window people, all of that kind of, Um, ran parallel with the feudal system. So the church dominated everything, dominated the economy, dominated everything. Okay, Now, so the cathedrals, the schools, all that was going on at the same time. And some of that came from what we call humanism. Now, humanism, like a lot of things, is partly good, partly bad. There was a time during the these Middle Ages, and I can kinda understand it. Um, the notion of the 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 what? Corruption and fallenness and sinfulness of the of humanity and even specifically the human body versus the spiritual, never got out of the Christian church. Way back we talked about Gnosticism, which taught dual. Spirit is good and pure. Matter, this earth, our bodies, is evil. That's where evil dwells. Okay? That never really got rid of um, to this day. That's why the monasteries and the whole business, they taught that you got you denied all of your bodily senses. You know, you starve yourself, you deprive yourself of sleep, you don't get married, you you, you eat just, you know, like the environmentalists, you know, twigs and pine cones. Um, But anything that you could do to punish this filthy body and its filthy desires, that was how you attained lofty Christianity, okay? So, after, not exaggerating, probably a thousand years of that, I can see why humanism would be attractive. Because here's what humanism taught. Humanism kind of rebelled against, not kind of, it rebelled against the um, demeaning of humans and humanity and men and women period. It was kinda like they finally stuck their heads up you know um, that had been beaten down and said listen people aren't scum they're valuable they're valuable to God. Now obviously This has its downside, and it happened. Pretty soon, you get rid of the notion of depravity and basic sinfulness of humanity. You get rid of the idea that we are dependent on God and we're subject to God, a governor of the moral universe. We begin to gradually stick our heads up and kind of, you know, uh, like birds preening I'm not that bad after all. In fact, I'm sick of hearing that we're scum. We're not scum. Look at the problems that we've solved. Look at the inventions we've made, which was going on exactly then. I have another whole section here on the, explore, uh, the explorers of the Middle Ages. The guys going around the globe. Magellan, Vasco da Gama, um, all of those kinds of people, and new inventions, the printing movable printing was got going about the 1200s and so everybody is kind of half nervously looking at each other saying we ain't that bad now what did that produce well one thing is it was i think it was squarely behind though it was spiritual it was squarely behind martin luther and the rise of um, the split in the Catholic Church and the rebellion against the crushing oppression spiritual and of you, over your conscience of the, the Roman Church. Humanism helped throw that yoke off because they said, wait a minute. There's joy in the Psalms. There's, there's a lot of glad parts of the Bible. We've only been hearing that we're all scum. So humanism started out with some decent, you know, hopeful and helpful things, but of course we are today completely rotted to the basement with humanism. We don't need God. We don't want God. We can solve our problems, the perfectibility of man and the competence of humans. There's nothing we can't solve. There's no horizon that we can't go beyond. There's no situation that we can't handle. Well, that's just pure, delusional arrogance of the sinful heart. But it started out with at least a seed of rightness. But now it's gone to, it's rotted. Um, But humanism then... um, started in the soil of people being weary of we're scum, we're scum, we're scum, we're scum, we're scum. Um, And a tyrant, there was no kind of a joyous, um, I'm redeemed. Everything is, keep thumb on you. Um, Maybe I'll, and and, and I do want to be, everything I'm saying here is the facts, okay, but um, there was some swinging back, not all the way, but some swinging back even among Catholicism after the Rome or after the Reformation, fifteen hundreds. Um, they even had to face up to the fact we're corrupt. The popes have been corrupt. Um, anyway, so I don't want to sound like we're just absolutely um, filleting the Catholics every Wednesday night, okay? Um, but this was a deep, there's a reason they called these the Dark Ages. It was spiritually dark. Um, any more than we were, we're beating up on the Israelites. The Old Testament is full of them going off the rails and God beating the daylights out of them. But He'd, he'd draw them back and He'd redeem them and so forth. Um, but anyway, Let me just, um, maybe we can, um, sort of get through all this. Um, getting back to then maybe some of the, there were some medical advances, um, movable print was another one which really helped with producing books, which encouraged learning and reading and, and literacy, um and they began to build great libraries. Um, one of the places we saw when we were in Europe, we went into um, the uh, library at Oxford. Okay, let me, let me tell you how picky they are there. I mean, you, everybody had, the the staff They had gloves and everything. You know, with the, the, you're looking at books, literally, you're looking at books that are 1,200 years old or older. And they, this curator of the library, head librarian, was talking to us that just some months earlier, Prince Charles had come into the library and wanted, you know, he was looking at a book. And I think she said he inquired about checking it out. No. Even him. No, you can take it over here. We carry it for you. We put it on this desk, on this little, you know, kind of a holder. You can read it there, and you don't put it back. You just tell us when you're done. We put it back. We, you know, put it together. Whatever covering, they put it back on the shelf. It doesn't matter if you're Prince Charles. You don't check out a book. That's how valuable they are. Um, that was the view really then. Um, Here's something this you'll find really interesting Um, as as more and more pieces almost whole copies of scripture are being discovered they're still being discovered we now have somewhere around 25,000 plus pieces or all the way from Scraps of a few verses to a whole Bible of the New Testament. Okay, Um, they're they're preserved, and and here's one of the ways copyists, translators, archaeologists look at stuff today. Um, There is a famous, famous copy of the Bible that was discovered in the early 1800s in an old monastery that's still being used somewhere in the Sinai Peninsula. And so that manuscript um, is called Codex Sinaiticus. Okay. Well, there's still disagreement over how good of a manuscript that is is it accurate? Remember, everything's copied by hand. Everything's translated by hand. So, you know, did, was was there errors crept into it? And one of the arguments that it may not, though the Codex Sinaiticus really influenced subsequent translations of the Bible, New American Standard, NIV, a lot of that, that had a huge impact on um, some portions of Scripture, and I'm not saying that we have a Scripture we can't trust, by the way, but the argument that Codex Sinaiticus might not be the most accurate translation is because it was found, um, um, it was actually discovered among the wood pile next to the wood pile was the kindling and the paper that they started fires with, and that roll was found in the wood box, okay? And it was in remarkably good shape. So the argument was, A, if it's in remarkably good shape, it didn't get much use the scholars who had access to that as that monastery 500 years ago. How come they didn't wear that thing out? Checking it and using it as their basic text to translate new copies. And the theory being if it was as accurate as everyone thought of it, then it ought to be worn out. And second, If it was thought of so little that it got displaced and put in the future, you know, fire starter, that's a second strike against it. Okay? Um, See how interesting that is? Anyway, um, but that's the world then into which all these new inventions, printing press, things like that, revolutionized it. And one of the earliest things that was widely printed was Martin Luther's 95 Theses, which challenged the Catholic Church with 95 points of debate. Um, that was one of the earliest things that was um, printed and sent all over everywhere. So lots of things were happening um, with, and also expanding of horizons when you think about. Um, It was in in the 15-teens that the Spanish got over here. And by the 1530s, they were exploring up in what's now Kansas. Now, that was 70 years before the English ever landed in Massachusetts. Um, So the exploration that was going on and the new discoveries were, all of that was helping to, in good and bad ways, New inventions and stuff, but it was—I tell you what—we're hooking our thumbs in our bib overalls and we can do her. We don't need a god. So, a lot of lot of cultural and spiritual movements going on. Okay, it's eight o'clock. Um, <clears throat> we gotta quit. I don't need to get much in next week or whenever we meet again to the Mongols. So, um, we'll we're. We'll probably have one more lesson that will kind of get us ready for the story of the Reformation and how that came about and all that's taken place, you know, took place at that huge, literally secular and church world changing moment. Okay, let's bow our heads, we'll pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, Again, we thank you that your superintending hand, even in a lot of cases seemingly invisible, was always here, always preserving your word, always even if it was just a remnant of faithful Christians, they were here. And your the fire of the gospel and the church never, ever, even if it burned low, it didn't go out. You preserved it. So we thank you that we can look back in history and know all that. It encourages us in the days ahead. Go with us as we go. Keep us safe, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.